Welcome to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Rich. I'm Kat. Can I say something? Yeah. I know you're Peter's best friend. And... I know you've never particularly warmed to me. No, don't, don't argue. We've never got friendly. But I just wanted to say I hope that can change. I'm nice. I really am, apart from my terrible taste in pie, and... It would be great if we could be friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, for this festive Christmas episode, we threw the choice out to the good, mostly, people of Twitter. We gave, I think it was four options, and, uh, yeah, by an overwhelming majority, this one was the one they chose. So, uh, which one was it, Kat? Well, Rich, in this episode, we're talking about the most divisive film of the 21st century. It's Richard Curtis's all-star 2003 festive platter, Love Actually. Is this movie the John Lewis Pulp Fiction, Middlemarch for the Great British Bake Off generation, or is it simply a ode to the all-consuming power of calories? When the film starts, it starts with Billy Mack, Bill Nye and, and his manager Joe, I've written manager C. Nesbitt. It's Gregor Fisher who played <laughs> Rab. And th- this is the kind of the one relationship or friendship that goes throughout the film where they're not actually interlinked with anyone else. And the atrocious song that's being written and, and it kind of weaves its way throughout the film. It's always on in the background. It's always He's always playing on TV. And I guess yeah. it's strange that they chose a rip-off of Love is All Around when you look back at, we're talking what less than 10 years previously, Richard Curtis and and that through Wet Wet Wet's version of Love is All Around Us and it uh, bombasted in the charts for the best part of, it was about four months, I think, wasn't it? I mean, I'd I, be honest, and again, this shows more about me than anything else, is that I think this may have been the first thing that I was really aware of Bill Nighy being in. And again, after this, he became this sort of huge household name and, and maybe it just said a lot about the kind of things that I consumed prior to 2003. No, I don't think so. I think that that's completely fair enough. I I think that this is the thing that ricocheted him into the, into the mainstream, even though he'd done lots of things before. I really like Gregor Fisher, who's um, playing his manager. I think that he's really good at he's but he was one of the things about this film that i like actually there's something about his i don't know he's got the the whenever there's a scene with the two of them i'm i'm quite drawn to him i think he has a lovely human quality that i think um makes their relationship quite um good i think as we go throughout the film and 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 billy mack is promoting this single and and he's always being brutally honest about it you know he he knows how bad it is and yet he's trying to get this song to christmas number one and yet his manager sitting there usually with his head in his hands or shaking his head at what's being said you know again essentially his job's on the line because he's the manager of this the supposed talent yeah and um their fate is kind of interlinked and the fact that you know at the start they tells the line about when uh, billy says this is shit and he says no solid gold shit <laughs> you know, there's some real sort of motivational stuff going on here yes yes and he does a really good job as his manager doesn't he, he gets him to christmas number one 
Yeah, I mean, and at the end of the day, you know, we're, and we, we're going to be honest, get this up front. You know, we're going to try and do this on more of a narrative than our usual format, where we we stick to the relationships because this film is so busy. I think yes. is a polite yes. word of putting it. It's um, there's so much going on that the the, the relationship of this, while it it links into everything through the music and the video, it actually has a beginning, middle and end um, involving Elton John. Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. And although I, I always find it strange that, you know, in 2003, you're opening a Richard Curtis film with Hugh Grant talking about September the 11th. I think that's, yeah, I hate that. <laughs> uh, and it's, I mean, it's just, especially now, I mean, we're, we're talking like 20 odd years later and hearing it's very jarring because Hugh Grant, everyone knows who Hugh Grant is and talking about September the 11th and then almost working September the 11th into the narrative of a multi-layered love story yeah and it's um to to date this horribly it's like those dramas you're now getting about covid19 and things like that it's all very i think a little bit crass but you can see the point and and his point was that when people were making their last calls to people it was there were messages of of love and 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 not hate although i question that somehow but it's um it's a it's a weird one to open with it's a weird one to open with because as as an event there's 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 two sides to what to what's happening there and it well it's just a strange frame of mind to put your audience in isn't it because um another thing that they use in this film later on in the narrative which we'll come to is um the little boy and his dad watching titanic together and i thought this film for something that's meant to be so escapist for the majority of it anyway, it really is quite fond of reminding you of real life tragedy <laughs> as a way of being like, hey, we're going to have a good time and relax. We're going to remind you of 9-11. We're going to remind you of Titanic. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite it's quite strange that there are two real life tragic incidences that are, <laughs> are used. So luckily yeah. there was a, a fair distance between t- t- Titanic and Yes, there, there was. Oh, that's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> But yeah, and and, uh, and again, the, the the theme running throughout this is airports. Yeah, especially the the beginning and the end, and that there's a couple of bits and bobs dotted around in between. And I mean, airports, they're soulless places um, at the best of times. And yeah, ninety nine point nine percent of it is overpriced shortbread with a queen's face on it or something. And it's <laughs> and and then you've got that small little glimpse into the love at the the arrivals terminal it's um it's a strange but i i, I don't yes know. Yeah. yes i know i know what you mean exactly and, and quite bad lighting yeah. <laughs> it's very harsh isn't it yeah. <laughs> it's quite harsh <laughs> they, it's funny they didn't focus on the couples who you know going on a package holiday at weatherspoons at seven o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah. having yeah having a pint at seven o'clock in the morning or or um big 
big Hindus. Um, yeah. That would have been. Oh, I would have liked that though. I think they could have they could have mixed it up a bit. So then, yeah, we get the subtitle that says five weeks till Christmas, and then we go into Colin First's character, who's telling his sick girlfriend that he loves her repeatedly. Yes, it's. Um, yes. I suppose it's easy with the benefit of hindsight, but uh, you wonder how long they've been together. I, I, for some reason, I thought they were married until I again re- rewatched it now. But um, yeah, it's and Colin Firth playing Colin Firth basically. Yes. He's, uh, <laughs> it's it's difficult to see him doing much else. Uh, it's, he's very good at that. I mean, I suppose Hugh Grant's very similar, but he's a very kind of stuffy, proper. Um, telling her this young woman that he loves her so much and he's off to a wedding without her. I mean, I, I guess this wedding, maybe it was his friends rather than hers. I suppose she might be more keen to go, but otherwise she seemed quite comfy staying in bed, suffering, watching loose women or something, I suppose. <laughs> well, he says, I love you even when you're sick and look disgusting. And it's right from the first moment of this film you're watching it as a woman you kind of think if she's someone that's meant to be looking disgusting right now then we're all in trouble because you know <laughs> she she's clearly a very, a very good looking woman <laughs> and she doesn't look disgusting in any way uh so but yeah he does keep telling her that he he loves her in a, in a slight he does sound quite anxious in that scene doesn't he like he, he's waiting mm. for it to come back to him and she doesn't return it's it's um, it's, it's it, there's an insecurity there isn't there like, yes. if, I, if i tell her i love tell her i love her enough she'll believe it or and and uh, but then as you said if he tells her she looks disgusting i mean maybe that's something her brother did maybe he's better at massaging her ego <laughs> yes maybe that's true i can't i can't remember exactly but i think it was one of those sort of tropes as well she was kind of like frolicking around in bed in a in a cozy jumper and pants maybe something like that the, the yeah. kind of stuff that you never actually wear when you're sick if you're if you're a woman <laughs> i mean well, how many pairs of tracksuit bottoms would you have on yeah. <laughs> at least four <laughs> <laughs> so, so then we have um uh liam neeson's character trying to get in touch with emma thompson's character to to um have a little chat with her about the fact that his wife has just died and and emma yes. emma thompson doesn't doesn't have quite enough time to have the conversation and, see this um, is like i mean looking at this now this is like an all-star British, I mean, Liam Neeson's Irish, but like uh, an all-star cast. You've got Liam Neeson on the phone to Emma Thompson, who's married to Alan Rickman. Yeah. About all, you know, and, and his wife's just died. And of course, you know, how, how long are we into this podcast? And, you know, he obviously didn't have that particular set of skills around his wife dying. Um, I mean, this could have been the prequel to Taken. But it's... Um, yeah. I mean, this is obviously fresh because we go from him phoning Emma Thompson to her funeral. So we can only assume that she's died within days, if not weeks. And it's difficult, really. I mean, you're seeing this man grieving. We've gone from adultery to awful Christmas music and Hugh Grant talking about September the 11th to a grieving widower. Mm, um, yeah. Love Actually, the rom-com. <laughs> yeah. And it's dealt with in, in a very Richard Curtis way where she's quite dismissive of his, uh, you know, 
his kind of needing to talk in in that moment says it's not that I'm not terribly concerned that your wife just died but I'm in the middle of something right now and and he says mm. oh that's all right bugger off and um yeah it's one of those things where I think that you're you're meant to take all of that as quite quite chummy and quite charming and but I think actually when you watch it maybe particularly when you've got a bit older when you watch some of those scenes you think oh god you know such a as you say to to touch on that moment that will be really intense grief for someone and have their best friends sort of going, I can't talk right now. <laughs> you're a bit, you're a bit heartbroken for him. Um, yeah, very yeah. much. And, and we find out later that he's left with a stepson yeah. too. So this isn't just a, you know, a couple that's broken up. There's also a child involved that isn't his. Yeah. Um, and when you've got that, uh, the way that in, the, the modern era, I suppose, you say this, we're talking about mental health and grief and, and everything is, it's encouraged and people are getting better at doing it. And yet in 2003, a man whose wife just died phoned presumably one of his best friends and being told, I'm too busy for you. Uh, l- luckily, it's taken with that humour, as you say. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, this time watching it and it was, I, I felt a bit silly really because I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me before, but I did wonder this time whether her responses to him, because there's a similar thing that she says to him in a few scenes time about how no one's going to shag him if he cries all the time. It did occur to, it, it occurred to me that maybe that is meant to be telling us a little bit about how uh, Emma Thompson's character tends to maybe internalize things a little bit too much because then you know later on down the line which we'll talk about later we have one of the most famous scenes in love actually where she in private expresses her emotion so i thought oh well, actually maybe maybe that isn't meant to be played to the audience as being completely normal her telling him to brush all of his emotions under the carpet maybe that's meant to be telling us something a little bit about her defensiveness what do you think well you it's something that you can kind of extrapolate if you if you sort of zoom out far enough. Yeah. Where it turns out that she and Hugh Grant are siblings. Yeah. So she she's Hugh Grant's younger sister, and uh, again, you'd imagine that if Hugh Grant's the prime minister, he's probably quite well educated and from a if not a background of complete privilege then certainly well off yeah so you assume that she is too and that's kind of maybe how kids or, or whatever were brought up in a certain way yes you know in, in a way that i mean I'm, I'm trying not to put politics in this but you know how certain people are bred almost to become politicians and you wonder if he if he was or, or not um but then we're also bearing in mind this is 2003 it's not 2021 where things are very different but it's yeah. um but you're still in a position where maybe that's just what she was expected to be as a wife and a mother. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, and we'll we'll find out later what what her kind of situation is. Yes. Um, but it's um, when you look at that, you kind of see that you know she, maybe she does have to have quite a thick skin, and if her treating Liam Neeson like that is that's that's what their relationship's like that's what their friendship's like and and i mean if you're brave enough to answer a phone call from liam neeson and dismiss him (laughs) 
Um, he's not going to come and track you down and punch you in the throat and do all the kind of stuff he does in one of the one of the great movies that we'll probably never talk about. Um, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. It's it's a strange friendship they have, and I mean, you know, we're in a position where this is about a two-hour film, and you've got people who are, I mean, the people have had to write diagrams and spider diagrams to demonstrate how people are linked. Yes, um, yes. We don't need too much detail about their about their friendship. No, they can just no. be friends. Yeah, completely, completely. I think that his he's he's good in in this film in terms of what he has has to work with. I think Liam Neeson. I know that you you associate him with the with the te- taken films but i i find him quite convincing as a as a man that's that's being wrecked by grief and I, and yeah i want i want to go and take care of him <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you probably have to obey your, your dying wife's wishes when i mean he jokes at the funeral about saying over my dead body and she's no no over mine yeah and having to carry her out to the music from the bay city rollers it's um that must be painful. Yes, yes. The, the the musical pedant in me doesn't enjoy that moment. I think it's just <laughs> like, even, even if she was sentimentally attached to the music, it just feels like a kind of harrowing moment for everyone involved because not only is something awful happening, but the Bay City Rolls play. Yeah, anyway, no, nothing against but, Bay City Rolls fans. Well, no, but um, I mean, I'm sure I mentioned once that I was going to have um, Who Wants to Live Forever by Queen at my funeral. <laughs> I know you're um, not a huge Queen fan, and to be honest, nor am I. It was just more for the gag. Yes, but, yeah, no, I think that's yeah. I think that's a great yes. gag. Uh, mm. So, so then we get we see Colin distributing his sandwiches. I am Colin, God of Sex. I'm just on the wrong continent. That's all. He's got a very impressive confidence in his own machismo. Yes. Do, do, do you think he has a little bit of, and this is obviously a huge compliment, do you think he has a little bit of the Rick Mail about him? Do you think that's what they were imagining him as at the time in terms of his potential? I, I think that's kind of maybe something that he was looking to project. Yeah. I mean, there's only one Rick Mail. Of course. But I think there is this kind of the, the faces and the kind of the the body language and the movement to it it does strike that that's maybe something he was going for, but the way he f- sees himself as this sex god, it's more bottom than anything else. <laughs> and that isn't a compliment. It's, um, and, and his whole f- decision and, and to go to America to meet women, because of course the myth that all American women find British men attractive. I mean, it takes confidence to go through with it at least. Yeah, he's kind of like a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> no one finds us attractive as well. I mean, we could see as well when, or when he's delivering the sandwiches um, <laughs> in, the, in the office and he, deliver, he tries to give a sandwich to Mia, the, the secretary to, yes. to Harry. And she, I don't think she even speaks to him, just kind of gets up and walks away. And we see later on the kind of guy that she's really into. Yeah. The, the anti-Chris Marshall. <laughs> don't blame her for that but um yeah she's um uh, when you see what what she becomes or how her involvement in the film develops later on it's um yeah you can see that she's um she, she's a driven woman too yeah there's it in you're right it's an important little detail that the fact that she's fending off advances from people like colin because 
it's good for you to see the the contrast in someone like Colin and someone like Alan Rickman's character. Do you think Colin's uh, storyline was a bit influenced by the success of the American Pie franchise, which would have been going on around this time when this film came out? Probably. I think this would have been... Because well, I think there is a link, actually, because um, January Jones, um, who's one of the American girls, she was in the third American Pie film. Mm. She was... The guy that's uh, the the girl that Stifler and oh, Shipbreak were after, right? Okay. Um, so they're I mean, time wise, they would have been spot on. And I, I guess when you look at it now, you know his swagger then turned into what you get from Jay from the Inbetweeners, except perhaps slightly less crude. Yes, he has his unbelievable belief in his own. You know, when he talks about packing his rucksack full of condoms to go to America and, and just, I mean, it's impressive. I mean, imagine having the ego and the balls to just have this, I suppose <laughs> like a, I mean, these days it would be like an anti-vaxxer thing. When I've done my own research and American women love British men. I'm going to go and, and sort it out. Yes. And to, I'm while he's incredibly annoying, yeah, you can kind of, I, I'm kind of impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's that self-belief, that self-belief yeah. in, in, in people in, in this kind of misguided way can be kind of inspiring. Farewell, failure. America, watch out. Here comes Colin Frizzle. And he's got a big knob. So then we go on to John and Judy, who are Martin Freeman and Joanna Page, simulating mm, what happened to them, sex. Eh? Yeah. yeah, exactly what happened to them. <laughs> Um, this was what I think when I first saw this I think this was just the weirdest part of the film and, mm. and I mean this is this at times is a very odd film but I I had absolutely no context for this at all yeah um, I I didn't know what a stand-in did I didn't know that this was something they would do on a film of any kind let alone a whether it's a porn film or a Hollywood film I don't know but I mean well bear in mind from some of the scenes I think it probably wasn't your your average Odeon crowd pleaser but it's um it, I, there was a strange I yeah for me I had, I had no context for it at all other than two people being directed to fondle each other yes and they're complete strangers um but um yeah so as as we've joked and jested about before the the meat cute in this one is um bold yeah with that with those sometimes i do think that that maybe the appeal of this film the sort of lasting appeal and even if people are watching it because they don't like it they have fun re-watching it is because it starts when you're when you're watching it and you're around our age so if you were young when it came out it starts to feel a little bit like a kind of rock musical doesn't it for millennials or or young gen x's where you know you just see all of these faces and uh, hear these tunes from a very specific era. And you're right that the, the fact that it's sort of bringing together people like Liam Neeson and Emma Thompson, these A-listers, with um, TV favourites like Joanna Page. And then it also would have been Martin Freeman. I know that he went on to be in very big films. But there is some, and even, yeah, like Rabsy Nesbitt and stuff. The fact that you have all of these people in this big budget film together, I think it probably just gives people a massive nostalgia hit, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's very 
2003. <laughs> incredibly, incredibly. Yeah. I think when when you look at it now, um, and and obviously in, in the time that's passed, you know, some some of the the actors have, have passed away, and 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 a lot of society has changed. And you know, we've joked on on episodes of this and on on episodes of of other podcasts about how technology dates a film. Yes, Whereas in this in this film, it doesn't really. I mean, it's, I mean, again, it's a very small side, and and we'll get to that with one of the characters later who has a mobile phone that rings constantly, and um, and everyone in this movie has a Nokia because it was two thousand and three, and everyone had a Nokia. Yes, there's um, little things like that that kind of that's the nostalgia, and you sit there thinking if she's not answering her phone with Nokia tune, it was she's probably playing Snake. <laughs> yeah, completely. No, and even even the fact that it's got Anton Deck in it being very kind of peak Anton Deck. So this was their transition from sort of because they yeah Biker Grove music, yeah. Then but I can try to make because they'd done the England World Cup song in two thousand and two. Oh well done. Well, you see that must mean that this is pretty near that. If you're going to do a World Cup song, then that means you're quite in your yeah. prime. And then moment. was it two thousand two or two thousand six? I think it was two thousand two. And then um, you had. Um, they did a film as well, one about like alien abductions or something. I can't remember when that would have been. Oh, yeah. That would have been mid-2000s probably. But yeah, when we were talking, we're in a golden age of Ant and Deck. Yes. Ant Deck. Yeah, and I do love the fact that they're in there. If you're going to regard this film in terms of its appeal as a kind of nostalgia fest, that scene mm. when they're on screen, I do always think like, yay, it's Ant and Deck. I'm very <laughs> glad that they got included because it feels so right that they're here. It's and they grounded. do. Yeah, they do... Um, I think they do. I that scene that they're in is, I think, quite good. It's quite funny. They have the line, you know, Billy's line about Blue being very, very good musicians, and, and Anton Deck sort of both looking at the camera nervously, and and your line that you quoted earlier on about the drugs. Yeah, was it? Don't don't, don't buy drugs. Become a rock star, and you get given them for free. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's all. I mean, we could do a podcast about that and deck, couldn't we? We could do. <laughs> <laughs> be a weird one. Um, but again, you know, th- this is kind of where we are in, in this era. Yeah. When, you know, and, and we'll come on to it later, but when Hugh Grant gives his speech, um, his big speech, and he talks about David Beckham. Mm. David Beckham's right foot, David Beckham's left foot. And this was David Beckham at his peak as yes. well. You know, just to chuck that in. Yeah. It's like everything is, it's almost like Richard Curtis had a like a little stopwatch and a little kind of just licked his finger and put it up and go, yes, this. Is <laughs> yeah, completely. That's so right. Um, so, Ugh. so then we go on to the first shot that we see of the wedding. I mean, it's a, it's a grand wedding. Um, everyone's looking great. It's, um, I mean, at this point, I think I only knew Andrew Lincoln from teachers. Oh, um, oh, I completely knew him from this life. That he was totally... Oh, so see, I hadn't, yeah. see, I hadn't seen that, yeah. yeah. But, uh, was he Egg or Yes, something? he was Egg, egg yeah. yeah. Everyone's got quite a specific Andrew Lincoln <laughs> reference, haven't they? And I think that, that probably affects how you view his storyline in this, I think. Because the fact that he's Egg, in my mind, which is an... It's a bit... Not 
a hundred miles away from a Joey Tribbiani. It's like, it's a very soft hearted <laughs> character, you know, so it's a non-threatening vibe. And so I think that that plays into how this storyline um, goes. But then, you know, I, I know that he's very famous for some other stuff now. So sometimes I think, oh, maybe if you know him from Walking Dead, it feels different. Oh, that would be weird. I mean, I, I watched <laughs> yeah. Walking Dead for a while until I just got bored. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, imagine if you only knew him from Walking Dead and came back and watched Love Actually. Yeah. That's um, yeah, a very big jump. But um, yeah, I mean, this is a lovely wedding and this whole all you need is love. I mean, it's... How can I be polite about this? Imagine being at that wedding and you're a bit <laughs> of a curmudgeon. You're a bit of a cynic and you're just kind of there because you got dragged along and you're just sitting there going, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> and everyone's there with the trumpets and the trombones and their flutes. Yeah, I um, think they. I've always thought, actually, the first time I, I, I saw this film, which is the cinema at the time, I hated everything about that scene. And then having got a little bit um, older and, and softer, this time I thought... Um, Lyndon David Hall, who's the person that's singing the song. Mm. At that moment where they have him come out and just sing the first few lines of the song, I think I thought, oh, that actually is getting me a bit, actually. I, I feel, oh, that's quite, that's a li- little bit moving there for a second. But then they ruin it, they ruin it by kind of the overkill of, <laughs> of all of these like bassoons and stuff and electric guitar in the pulpit. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, God, you, you could have actually made that moment really rather lovely, but you've, yeah. Is that like one of those um, YouTube weddings where they all start doing synchronised dancing? Yeah, they, you know, it's like kind of this drowning your creme brulee in, in <laughs> like, I don't know, like really, really bad school dinner custard or something. It's so, so then we see Hugh Grant uh, as Prime Minister meeting his staff. What do we, what mm. do we have to say about this? Well, it's um, very much Hugh Blair. It's, I mean, we're, we're at that, that time. There's a, a snapshot of 2003 as well. It's, um, it's funny that he, and they make, I won't say they're late on too thick, but it's definitely implied that he's a, a bachelor. You yes. know, he's not married. He doesn't have kids. And obviously riffing on, on Tony Blair, um, when he says about the scary wife, and yeah, the, I, the nappies and things like yeah, that. Yeah, don't like that line. <laughs> that, was, that was a little bit like, okay, you know, I'm not Tony Blair. And yeah. um, I suppose it, it's difficult because they're immediately politicising his role, even though he's totally neutral politically in this film. There's not all this stuff about policies and the, the relationship with the US and everything. There's nothing actually there that's political, except the fact that he's the prime minister. All of his shenanigans go on in 10 Downing Street. Yes. And... And this is the weird, one of the many weird things that we'll we'll come into, that um, in this golden age of 2021, he has essentially got a crush on a subordinate in a position of, I mean, can't have a much more disparate place of prime minister and catering staff or assistant. No. And chucks his influence around a little bit Obviously, yeah, yeah, defensive at some point, and you know, I mean, people are allowed to find other people attractive, of course. But yeah, um, yeah, uh, it's um, it's an odd way. It's kind of I, I did see something. Have you ever seen those honest trailers on YouTube? Um, they cut things, and they basically imply that he, paraphrasing, fucks the help. 
Oh, really? Um, yeah, and it's kind of what he does. Yeah, it's just difficult to watch now because she fancies him because he's Hugh Grant. She so he fancies her because she's Martine McCutcheon, and it's two thousand and three. Of course, Martine McCutcheon's in it, and she's fantastic. But it's um, it's a weird one to watch now because of that, and and the these days that wouldn't be really allowed um or they'd have to do it a lot more sensitively yeah well it well it would depend on what film we were um we were dealing with in the sense that i mean i have to confess with this film that i'm quite often drawn to storylines where there's some element of it that poses a kind of real difficulty if you see what i mean so Mm. so like the emma thompson Alan Rickman storyline, the David and Natalie storyline, and the Andrew Lincoln, Kira Knightley storyline. They're probably the three ones in this that I have always paid the most attention to, uh, just because there's sort of thing, sort of real hurdles going on. So like with this one where he meets her and you immediately ascertain that he's got a crush on her, you do think, oh my God, but he's the prime minister. That's going to be a weird, let's see how they deal with this. Hmm. so so my dilemma with these things is always there's a part of me that wants to say oh yes the film would be improved if they made you know if they if they made it so that everyone there's no power imbalance between anyone Hmm. and and nothing happens that um you could possibly object to but i think in life things people do you know do weird mm. things and they do get obsessed with people they shouldn't get obsessed with and and that, and that does happen it's all down to how a film handles it isn't it rather yeah. than having the storyline in itself yeah yeah definitely i yeah it's just um uh, are we allowed to jump time here like into we're 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 quite fluid in this episode, yeah yeah we? yeah go yeah. for it um yeah. i mean essentially when the president of the usa comes to visit and uh, Hugh Grant leaves them alone in a room together and it looks like he's I mean again this is what a US president thing is looking into the future but um, her- physically I'd say harassing but being inappropriate yeah. to to Natalie yeah and um, and this is what kind of triggers the the big little Great Britain speech that he gives and um, yeah. and shortly afterwards um, he essentially has her fired because her presence is distracting. Yeah. So is it is it that he has her fired, or does he just get her put into a different uh, he, he department? Redistributed, I think was the word. He yes. Used. But he had her removed from her role because I think he he fancied her too much. It was like being at primary school and you pull the pigtails of the girl you fancy or something. Not not. Yeah, that, and that and um, you're right. There's there is something there, isn't there? Because that probably does mean that she loses. Uh, you know, a really good job to to have a slightly less good job because he fancies her. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, she might have been being flirted with by another politician maybe, but it's... Um, and, and some of the stuff in there as well was quite cruel around... She was saying that her boyfriend was unpleasant about her her thighs yes and then the chief of staff or whatever the um, other role is saying oh she has a huge ass. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what it's one of those things where, I mean, people do have nasty ex-boyfriends that do try and diminish their confidence. That happens, so I think that that's okay. 
okay for her to be saying that and to be describing yeah. a character. But then that thing of his chief of staff saying that thing about her thighs, if it's clear that she has some kind of agenda where she wants to undermine Natalie for some kind of reason, again, that's, you know, that's an interesting element of what her motivations is. But we're not told that, are we? So that that line that she has about, you know, that's a pretty sizable ass. You kind of think, well, we, we're never told why she's sort of gunning for her. You know, it's like, mm. why, where did that come from? And then we also have the thing of Natalie's dad calling her plumpy. Yeah, true. So there's quite a few different... And then at the end of the film, when she meets uh, Hugh Grant's character at the... At the airport, she jumps into his arms and he says, God, you weigh a lot. And I always think that that's such a weird line to give him, considering that at this point of the film, she told you that her ex-boyfriend really wasn't very nice to her and he used to make jibes about her weight. I mean, what a weird thing to do. It's like, ah, I shall also make jibes about your weight then. Uh, so... If he if he's saying she looks disgusting, I mean, she'll only end up in bed with his brother at some point. That's such a good point. It's so true. I mean, it's it's yes. something that runs through the film. There's so there's so many jokes about people's weight all the time, or people's appearance, oh. and um, yeah, like I I, rem- I remember sitting with my then boyfriend after watching this at the cinema. Uh, we were waiting for our train and I can remember I you know it was sort of like in this relationship I didn't feel insecure or anything but there was something about the film I think it's because it's littered with all of these little comments about people's appearances and girls being too fat or whatever I can remember sort of turning to him and saying I'm sorry my hair is so messy and like becoming this sort of like massive insecurities because I thought god I've never you know I'm never going to be quite good enough for for Richard Curtis's world I don't think so you know when you're a young woman watching these things they have an effect on you you have Emma Thompson stressing about being too fat I mean my god you know I read that they put her in like some sort of padding yeah I think because she's so amazingly spelt they had to give her a little bit of extra but, but even with the extra padding she describes herself as being like Pavarotti and mm. you know and again she might have insecurities there but then they follow that don't they with the shot of Mia in her red twin set looking sort of you know very glamorous so it it feels as if you're being told that it is true that Emma Thompson's character is, is a bit you know a bit over the hill or something you know? hello Natalie hello David I mean sir shit I can't believe I've just said that <laughs> and I've gone and said shit twice <laughs> I'm so sorry sir it's fine, it's fine. You could have said fuck and then we'd have been in real trouble. Thank you, sir. I did have an awful premonition I was going to fuck up on my first day. Uh, I mean, and it was very amusing to see uh, Marty McCutcheon swearing as much as she did. I suppose you would get nervous if you meet the Prime Minister and, and luckily he, he lowered the tone sufficiently and said it's a good job he didn't say fuck. So. <laughs> yeah. I think at the, around this time, Marty McCutcheon was starring in My Fair Lady right, in the okay. West End, you know, and in, in My Fair Lady, it's a fa- famous scene where, where she's at the races and, and she says, move your ass to, 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 someone, to uh, someone on a horse. And she says it in front of all, all of the ter- terribly, terribly uh, well-bred posh people and, you know, gets a big laugh. So, and Henry Higgins is trying to sort of, you know, turn her into this, into this fine young woman. So... I, I slightly wonder whether Richard Curtis was a bit inspired by all of that, with mm. her getting her to do that. I mean, I think that the chemistry between those two is great, actually. What do you think? I think it works. I think 
there is that kind of playfulness. Yeah. Um, I think as as a relationship, it's not unrealistic. It's not weird. And wasn't there a joke later that she's his type? Or twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah, I love that yeah. bit. That's one of my favourite bits in the film. That that little <laughs> exchange between her dink. and Emma Thompson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think that that I I think it's yeah. It seems fairly fairly realistic. I, I I don't have any any beef with it at all. And as you say, I mean, perhaps the the use of the power imbalance could have been dealt with better, but. I mean, there's no issue with them being there being one. It's just you know how it's handled. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't. I. You're right, though. I don't like the. I don't really like the way that the thing is handled between the president making a move on her and then her being redistributed without Hugh Grant's character having any kind of conversation with her about it, and then she has to write to the prime minister and say, "I'm yours." You know, he doesn't have to sort of check that she's okay or anything i mean i think all of that doesn't date very well now because it it feels as if she's somehow held responsible for the president making a move on her and she seems to kind of take a lot of that responsibility on herself and you think you know why what's she meant to do in that position she can't tell him to go fuck himself can she goodness it's a pretty little son of a bitch right there did you see those pipes yeah, yeah, no, she's, she's terrific. That's a jomba. <laughs> well, I thought maybe it could be the sort of thing that Bad Santa would say. Yes, yes, that's true. Oh, maybe that's why Bad Santa have... Or is, or is Bad Santa the same year as Love, actually? That'd be quite weird, actually. Yeah, it's it a similar be. time, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. so Billy Bob Thornton is officially the sort of... meant to be the dirty side of Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> He is bad Santa. He is bad Santa. Yeah. Uh, okay, so yeah, so if we if we ret- if we return vaguely to the to the narrative of the film, so we have uh, Alan Rickman's character having his yeah yeah he's in his office and he has a little exchange with the secretary, and then he sits Laura Linney's character down to tell her that she needs to tell Carl that she loves him. Yeah, he's um he's certainly involving himself in the. <laughs> sexual politics of his office isn't he he is isn't he this i mean i i've done appraisals of staff that i manage and it isn't why haven't you slept with him yet (laughs) just do it get out of the way make everyone's life easier i mean i suppose from a point of view you know it's kind of if maybe he's picked up on tension and it's going to improve productivity or something yeah maybe that's it keep his people happy you know yeah um we're exchanging ideas, bodily fluids. It's, it's one of these kind of offices. All just let it let it happen. But um, it's very, I don't know. It's, it's almost like a guru sort of thing, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's, it's, mentor, mentee. It's interesting because he's sort of setting himself up there as, hello, I'm someone who's got my personal life sorted, so I'm in a position to hand out advice. And then you sort of see, it's like, hang on, how come you're telling her what to do? <laughs> Is he the the smug married? <laughs> yes, he's the smug married. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And as as we sort of find out over the course of their office politics, he's um, certainly keen on dipping his own pen in the company ink. But, um, <laughs> well, we'll come to that, won't we? Yes, we will. Um, uh, I mean, this is the first time we've talked about Alan Rickman 
uh, as and, and I guess this being Christmas is going to be part one of an Alan Rickman double bill. Yeah, I came up with the slogan to sum it up. Go on. So our Christmas Alan Rickman double bill is going to be called Rickman Around the Christmas Tree. <laughs> <laughs> I only worked on that for two weeks. Well worth it. Thanks. Anyway, uh, so yes, you were saying Alan Rickman. He's he's one of your speciality subjects. Well, only for the other film that we'll be doing. I mean, it's interesting. He played a German in Die Hard, and I think his secretary's German. Yeah, I think Mia is she German? Or well, the actress that plays her? Is yes, German, I think she might be. I think um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. He's got got a type, but. Mm. Um, it's interesting as well that let's be honest, he's probably the villain of this film. If we're oh, do you think so? Well, if we talk about well, you mentioned that the one of the kind of key memorable scenes of this is Emma Thompson in tears. Yeah, who made it happen, Mister Gruber? Yes, yes, I, I I see what you mean from from that point of view. I mean, I mean, if we're talking villains, I mean, who, who do you reckon? I well, I think that I mean, the film wants you to think that Mia's the villain rather than Alan Rickman's character. I think we're meant to think, well, oh, poor put upon Alan Rickman. Oh, he's just trying to do his job, and look, he's got a little devil girl following him around, opening her legs. I actually <laughs> saw something earlier. I was doing some very mild research in, in the way that I do for these things, and there was a video, and it basically implied that Mia is Satan. Because she wears a lot of red. Well, they have her dressed as the devil at the Christmas exactly. party. Yeah. And it's a strange choice to come as the devil to the Christmas party, so it feels quite overt as a, yes. as a um, costume choice for her. It's very on the nose. I mean, may- maybe in 2003 we we would have thought she was the villain, but now it's uh, maybe it's an age thing. Maybe you say, oh, Rickman, you bastard, look what you've done. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, I think that Again, it's one of these storylines where I think that's an it's an interesting storyline, but and I don't know whether this is down to uh, Richard Curtis as a first time director, but the flirtation scenes between Alan Rickman's character and her seem so stiff, hmm. and she kind of you know she sort of says you know I'll just be under the mistletoe waiting to be kissed <laughs> and kind of opens her legs sort of slightly kind of robotically and those bits you think you know these are good actors I think you could have directed this in a way that made us feel that there's a little bit more of a you know they could just be sort of she could just be sort of someone who's naturally flirtatious and they could have a good rapport and that's their way of getting through the working day is that you know they make each other laugh or whatever and for whatever reason that's kind of spiraling out of control because then you watch it less like you're kind of thinking oh look at that hussy you know pulling the moves on him and i think that they're really trying to make you think he's the he's just you know he's just a bit of a grumpy guy who you know who who can't help himself because look how predatory she's being i mean he's he's stuck in this horrible life of emma thompson and presumably a fair bit of money and he's doing well in his career and he just have an attractive woman throwing herself at him just to make himself feel better, he'll have a sports car next to an opponent. <laughs> why? Why do you think he is so? Well, but okay, both ways. Why do you think that Mia likes him so much, and why do you think Mia is such a temptation to him? Um, I, I guess f- from from his point of view, if you're 
in a job like that and and let's be honest i mean i i don't work in the private sector so i don't know if this is the gun thing you know the money being lavishly spent on christmas parties and offices where there's probably pool tables and ping pong and vending machine stuff and um and everyone's really casual and and stuff but um the way that the the environment and there seems to be this kind of loose say hierarchy there where he's clearly the boss but she feels comfortable enough to do that and he seems like fine you know maybe at first it is that harmless flirtation and you know someone's got a crush and you know some people for her it might just be a game or a bit of fun yeah um but i think over the course of it you know it's easy to fall down that rabbit hole you know a lot of things go on at christmas parties um and as we see you know he's blatantly trying to um match make sarah and carl i I don't know maybe maybe it's just that kind of working environment like a cult (laughs) a lot of that stuff going on but he's um uh, it's hard to know what he does other than yeah flirt with his secretary wasn't she his secretary or i suppose he must be I um, think so, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. I mean, if she's single and ready to mingle, she can do what she wants. But it's, I don't know, from, from his point of view, it does seem like a a bit of a, the kind of cliched trope, really. And he just, I don't know, maybe this is Richard Curtis's kind of little eye on, on what, what he thinks this kind of behavior is like and how it regularly happens. Yes, because it's tricky, isn't it? You're not really told anything about the Rickman uh, Emma Thompson marriage, other than things that make you think that it's perfectly fine. So even mm. if they gave you, you know, the impression that maybe something was going wrong there, then that would be a little insight into kind of what what might be driving him in in other directions. But as it is, you think you're not really told why he thinks that Mia is. Is, is something that's sort of worth taking taking this risk on, really. And it, it does make him look quite superficial because you think, well, they don't look like they have a natural connection. Um, so no. why, why, if we're trying to buy into this idea of him being this, you know, fully fleshed out character, why, do we, why are we sympathetic to him kind of doing that then, you know? I, I guess, though, it is just he's a middle-aged man and he's got a, a young, attractive work person and let's let's be honest that's what a lot of people would do good good it's an art gallery full of dark corners for doing dark deeds right good well i suppose i should take a look at it or something you should well yeah so one person we haven't really talked about yet is the little boy the boy. The boy. <laughs> the um, stepson. Yes. Yeah. So, what what do we what do we think? I I personally am set against him from earlier on because he has that line of talking about this girl that he's in love with, and he says she's the coolest girl in school. Everyone loves her because she's heaven, and that's always made me kind of resent him because I kind of think you know, like if you've seen any John Hughes films, you know, you should know that the girl that you're meant to be in love with is the least popular girl, and you know, the one who eats prune sandwiches and keeps a family of woodlice in her desk and has an obsession with old ships or something. That would be better. That would have got me on side. But as it is, he's like, no, yeah, you this know, is, this is Richard Curtis films, not John Hughes. <laughs> 
he's, yes. yes, he's very articulate, isn't he, this little boy? He is. Yeah. I mean, uh, strange as well. You know, his, his sort of love background is from Titanic, and he's sort of educating Liam Neeson about the... It's like being shit kicked and the agony of being in love with someone. I, I mean, it is kind of, I suppose, if you look at that, it's kind of we're maybe one step away from talking dogs. <laughs> the, the way that, you know, you have those on those Christmas channels that have those sort of hallmark films and having the kind of, it's just counterbalancing, isn't it? It's like having, it's another link. And it gets them back to the airport. It's just, I don't know, like, with the scenes in the, the film with the stand-ins and the nudity and stuff, I mean, and then what are you trying to do, appeal it to children? Um, yeah. I mean, how many, I'm not saying this is aimed at middle-aged people or anything, but like, how many people of adult age are then going to suddenly be in, invested in the the pursuits of a 13-year-old boy? I mean, bear in mind, he's only uh, a couple of years younger than Kira Knightley. Um <laughs> The, the pursuit of this boy running through an airport at the end after this girl. And let's, let's be honest, we're talking 18 months, two years after September 11th. He'd have been shot dead. <laughs> he'd have had so many holes in him <laughs> as he runs through that airport. Yeah, you feel for those security people having to run after you kind of think god they're already going to be so stressed at this moment in time why are you doing this to them yeah. uh, it's difficult isn't it because i mean again there's a curtis film where he romanticizes everything about the uk and you're surprised they're not ch- chasing him with like truncheons and blowing their whistles but let's be honest now yeah they'd have shot him in the back <laughs> the minute he got past them it's um, poor kid. You know, I mean, the, Liam Neeson's lost a wife and a son. One thing that I think would have been good if is if they had had her at the concert, you know, do, doing something that wasn't absolutely perfect. She could have maybe taken a tumble or, you know, done a bit of ad-libbing that went wrong or something. Something to show us that she's human and he loves her as a as a human, you know. Whereas well, or to link lot, into you know. to that. I mean, she could have been like the second lobster. Yes. Or, you know, in the nativity play. Exactly. Because because the thing is as well, it you, you watch it maybe particularly when you get a bit older and you think setting your sights on the most popular person in school will only be not disappointing for a minority yeah. of people. So it might be better mm. if, like in Gregory's Girl or something, you know, you mm. have the, at the beginning of the film, it's one person that he likes. And then, you know, as it goes on, he finds the actual person that he should be with. And that that's a much more realistic, <laughs> heartwarming way to an inventive way of, of bringing your film. But the fact that he is kind of able, I think it's kind of implied, isn't it, that he's able to win the heart of the most popular girl in school. You think, I don't know. know your limits. Know <laughs> your limits. Exactly, exactly. And also he hasn't talked to her. It's another theme in the thing, you know, is that a lot of these guys, it's like with Andrew Lincoln, Kira Knightley, it's, a lot of it is to do with projection rather than... And that's one thing that's nice about the Joanna Page Martin Freeman storyline is you kind of think, well, at least they're talking to each other over a number of days and that's leading to them dating each other. That's, you know, in some ways a healthier way of going about it. Well, then, I mean, conversely, a healthy way of going about it is they're starting at the end and going back to the beginning. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Um, it's, it's weird being in that position and not that position where... <laughs> these are unintentional where they're basically starting their courtship bear in mind they they're engaged by the time of the ending yeah 
And oh, the awful bit. I, I think I threw up when he <laughs> drops her off at her door. Oh, uh, after yeah. After their date, and she says, all I want for Christmas is you. Yeah. But in in Laura Linney's love scene, she takes her top off in a way that mm. when you're watching it, you kind of think, I don't really think they needed to get her to do that. I don't think it's necessary, but they got to do it anyway. But then in the that out. scene, which I've been to that scene now, he, no man looks like that. I mean, that's r- ridiculous. Yeah. And I know this sounds awful because, of course, women in films when they're in underwear and stuff not you know that's often not average or normal but it's he's like this brazilian male model Hmm. who happens to work in some office yeah and he's about to get his end away with her and sorry he's about to make love and (laughs) he's um no one looks like that and it's ridiculous yeah yeah it's um agreed I, i i think it's completely balanced that and i'm not saying this is a man because like she she gets her top off but like you know there's something for everyone in that scene oh i see so you're implying well <laughs> if we're talking if we're talk, keeping count of how many nipples right i see what i see scene, what you're saying you know, i've i've gone there i went there i understand what you're saying now i i know you were expecting something profound no 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 i wasn't i wasn't <laughs> <laughs> don't worry i wasn't that much and of course you know i mean if we're going to be really disgusting i mean he, he clearly wasn't enjoying himself that much he didn't look like he was doing that awkward kind of crossing his legs oh i see i see yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, no no i mean i think it, it sets up very unrealistic standards for both men and women in this film in terms of what you're meant to look like at your best because i think they they have carl looking like that and the implicate it's a bit like the mia thing the implication is that kind of well laura linney's character you know the reason that she loves him even though she doesn't really talk to it is because he looks like this and I don't know, there's some that that's never really rung true to me in terms of how she comes across. You think, I don't know, she feels like someone that maybe would be into someone because, you know, I mean, it might be to do with physical attraction, but it also might be mingled with the fact that they got on or something, you know? They, yeah. It's like they keep doing this thing in this film where they plonk a model in front of Alan Rickman or they plonk a model <laughs> in front of... Laura Linney and they expect you to just project onto that well obviously they'd be in love with them because they look like a model you know it, it doesn't matter that they have no chemistry this would be a really short podcast if that was the case <laughs> look at the dysfunctional relationship oh yeah he fancies her it's fine <laughs> they have um and they have uh, Hugh Grant at one point saying to Billy Bob Thornton oh well you know you're still handsome whereas I look increasingly like my aunt Mildred and I know that that's meant to be self-deprecating but that's another thing you kind of think if men watching this are thinking if Hugh Grant is meant to look like <laughs> increasingly like his aunt Mildred then I'm in trouble you know I think it um yeah it's I, it, I think it makes quite a lot of people nervous about whether or not they're cutting the mustard in terms of their physical attributes are you saying the like films like this are just sort of putting making people insecure? I I do think that this film makes makes a lot of people feel insecure. Hmm. What do you think? I mean, it's there. I mean, I have no body confidence issues, but then you see Carl and you just think, "You prick! Put it, <laughs> put it away, man." He's obviously just oiled himself in preparation for the lovemaking. 
Yes. Oh, just that's not realistic. He's tripping over his socks. You know, he's all embarrassed because he hasn't worn his best boxers. Yes, completely. I mean, yeah. I think I think all of those things you're describing would have been preferable because I think that that's that makes people buy into uh, love stories much more if both people look like they're blundering humans. <laughs> Which is why I think that the. Um, the Hugh Grant, Martin McCutcheon one in terms of chemistry is one of the best pairings ke- just purely on chemistry because they both feel like actual people. Yeah. 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 Even though they're both gorgeous, they manage to be at the same time gorgeous while seeming human. You know, even the thing of Hugh Grant, you know, kind of slamming his head down the desk going, you're the prime minister for God's sake, you know, don't, and saying hi to her awkwardly in the corridor and then going, what an idiot to himself. And, you know, he does oh, that I... awkwardness really well. Yeah. yeah. It's Hugh Grant though, isn't it? No. Yes, it's Hugh Grant. That's... It's Hugh Grant. No, very few, it's very hard to do, to be as good looking as that while managing to do very convincing social awkwardness. Is, yeah. Oh, quite a... I, we, we do work. <laughs> uh... Uh, so, oh yeah. So maybe we should talk about the speech. Yeah. Yeah. God, which one? <laughs> the, um, the the prime minister's speech. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, it's as a kind of it is this kind of like in a film you get these like roaring inspirational things. They normally come at the end of the film and not what, a third halfway through, and it's not in reaction to someone chatting up your girlfriend. You know, well, I, paraphrasing <laughs> again, but it's um, he's decided that. He's taken what I want. I'm going to be rattle the saber and and all this kind of stuff. Yes, and um, and and he's basically gone against all sense, and he's basically gone right. We were at an impasse with all these, you know. We got this special relationship, and yes, the USA are taking a piss and all that. But you felt up my bird. I'm going <laughs> to right. I'm going to ruin everything for the next fifteen years. <laughs> because of my insecurities that I didn't do it first. Um, it is just yeah t- to do that. And, and again, you can see all these little politics mates, cabinet, whatever. Um, they're all sitting there going, oh, look at him. Yeah, he's our leader, our dear leader, cult. And everyone's clapping and, and all that. He's probably started World War Three. Yes, completely. Um, and she's sitting there looking sheepish. Yeah, I feel really sorry for her at that moment. You'd be thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> What have I done? <laughs> if only she knew he, she was going to get fired. Yeah, completely. <laughs> Put her in her place. Yeah. Um, how dare she? It's exactly. um, it's 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 a great scene in isolation, and it shows Hugh Grant doing. I mean, would he go away from home and do this in in the backyard of the president? Would he do it in the White House? Don't know. Do a speech like that? Oh, doubt it. He's doing it at home where he's comfortable. Yes. Um, and the kind of dynamic between Bad Santa and, and Hugh Grant are a little bit, there is this kind of sleazy, he, he does play the sleazy guy quite well. If actually, if that had been a dream sequence after he'd caught Billy Bob Thornton <laughs> with it, that would have been fine and actually would have been quite funny, you know, like yeah. imagine if I just went and did that now. A Scooby-Doo and, um, ending. Yeah, exactly. I think it would have been fine in that context, but, it, but as it is, it's... um. And I think at the time it felt very on the nose, a little, a little bit kind of like sort of saying, you know, our current prime minister could solve all of his problems if he if he just delivered this speech, which is very s- simplistic. And 
yeah, I have a bit of a problem with the fact that he lists all the things that are great about this country and it's basically a list of men. I mean, Harry Potter comes up, but that's, you know, like Sean Connery gets to be called Sean Connery rather than James Bond. Whereas mm. when it's J.K. Rowling's turn, it's Harry Potter. They don't name J.K. Rowling. And I watched this recently with three three generations of women from my family watched this together and my um my 15 year old niece pointed out that it would have been it would have been a good idea for them to name check jane austen in that uh list considering that a lot of the storylines in rom-coms such as this probably inspired mm. a little bit by jane austen's writing so i don't know yeah. or even the queen like, or even the queen so, something silly like, <laughs> she's she's a woman like this it's almost like like that it's almost deliberate would you like the last uh... I'm very lucky I've got one of those constitutions where I never put on weight hello <laughs> Hello. I'll tell you where, where we haven't gone. Yeah. We haven't. We, we've kind of left Colin. First we have. Behind, we have. We? I was just going to say that. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's now shacked up in Marseille. Yeah. South of France, writing a novel. Cliche. Yeah. I mean, we're then introduced to his. I mean, the I suppose the housekeeper or what, the whoever looks after his house. Yeah, I think the cleaner. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and then she's got him a new cleaner, housekeeper, whatever. And this is kind of where it gets weird. About there's obviously an attraction there between Colin Firth and, and Aurelia. Yeah. But they don't speak the same language. Yeah. Because who needs language? The <laughs> yeah. universal language. We all yes. know what that is. Yes. I mean, I think you know that there's there's things that you can do around that i think that him learning to speak her language is one of the few genuine attempts that guys make in this film to actually communicate with women (laughs) (laughs) so in that sense it's a a romantic bit of the film him him bothering to do that um but but i don't but something i don't really like so much is is that you know they have that kind of shot of her jumping into the to the lake and his eyes sort of trailing down her body and you get you get told very firmly that Aurelia has a has a good body some woman some nice pants and a nice bottom so you know woman <laughs> exactly <laughs> but um but i think uh, one thing about their pairing though is at least you get because you get the subtitles you're mm. you're at least shown that she has um she's not a completely submissive uh character in his life you know she she makes the the little comments about his writing when she's swimming after them you know i hope you know i hope i'm not going to kill myself for some shit writing and stuff <laughs> and and um that yeah. that kind of goes through through the film where you where you're shown that at least really you know is that she's she's got more a little bit more of an internal life than than some of the other female characters what what do you think I, I thought, like, again, it was, this was one that perhaps, like you say, aged slightly better than I remembered. Yeah. Because I was just thought it was him and she was the cleaner. And it was like, 
Lady Chatterley's lover in reverse or something. It was like... Yeah, and there are so many women working for men in this film, aren't there? Yeah, and that was it. It's like, oh, she's the help and I'm going to have my way with her because I fancy her. Um, And I kind of, again, excised it from my memory that I forgot the whole bit where he... I, I just... For some reason, I thought they ended up kissing when he dropped her off at the end, and then that was it. Yeah. And then, but then the fact that he's gone off and learned Portuguese and she's learned English because, I mean, of course, he doesn't have to learn Portuguese because he can just shout and point, and everyone understands English if you just shout a bit. (laughs) But it's, um, you know, I mean, it's that that amusing English thing of she's Portuguese, uh, Portuguese footballer, oh, Eusebio, yes, because that's what English men do. And, um, But I, I guess that did have a kind of an evolution of some point, and it was on his part. There were that it was heading that way, and as you say, when she has to strip down to her matching underwear, which I doubt would be realistic, and <laughs> um, jump into this dirty water to chase a book. I mean, obviously it's her fault, but even so. He, he's Colin Firthing his way around. Oh no! Don't worry, leave it. It's crap. Yeah, yeah. I wondered whether that were you because you know the way Colin Firth, the, the, the a very, a very famous bit of nineties television is uh, Colin Firth getting out of the lake as Mister Darcy, and I I wondered whether that scene was meant to be sort of flipping it. Mm. But I don't know. Maybe yeah. not. But it's sort of silly, though, because him getting out of the lake as Mr. Darcy, I think, would initially have been kind of, you know, the the makers of Pride and Prejudice sort of saying, wouldn't it be kind of quite good if we had a scene where the man was, you know, kind of maybe sort of objectified a little bit because he's he's all sort of hunky and he's getting out of the lake, whereas with Love Actually, they reverse it back again. And you kind of think, no, this is the original, (laughs) the original trope. It's better the other way, more original the other way. So You've just know. flipped it back to what we're taking the mick out of in the first yeah, place. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think in a weird way, I say weird, but I, I, I found that one less awkward than yeah. I remember. Yeah, the two of them are, are quite class acts as well, aren't they, as as actors? Yeah. Like, at the at the end, you kind of think, you know, they're they're managing to make... To, to feel as if they're maybe raising raising the tone a bit. Her her father telling her his her sister that she's Miss Duncan Donuts two thousand and three and stuff that you know that stuff going on in the background isn't so good. But um, that's really I forgot about that. That was some of that. Like I mean, you could have maybe one yeah. as a joke, and that she's like, oh, no one would marry you, blah blah blah. But Jesus, that was heavy. Like yeah. there was a lot of it, wasn't there? Yeah, and um. They have a really uh, earlier in the film saying refusing a second croissant, saying, "If you saw my sister, you'd understand why." You but that, that could have been oh, it. Yeah, exactly. Like leave it at that. Then you <laughs> see the sister. Yeah, she could be what you know. But you don't have to remind us of it. No, it's so yeah. strict. You yeah. know, yeah, completely, completely. Um, it's, um, but, but yeah, yeah. wondering in love actually too if they're still together. Um, <laughs> But then I suppose at the end, at the airport, you know, because the, they, they emerge through there with um, the with Kira Knightley and her, Jamie's more attractive friends, did I pick the wrong one? Yes, yes. That's quite amusing. Yeah, that is amusing. It's a good example of that her actually being given some, some lines that are funny mm. herself in a way that quite a few of the other female characters aren't. Although yeah. their, ki- their kiss in the restaurant is a bad kiss. 
It's very kind of close-mouthed, weird two people that have been directed to kiss, and it's really early in the morning, and we really don't want to kiss each other. So yeah, I don't know. but uh, I was watching it and had coffee machine envy, which shows... An off your bye? No, thanks. Thank God. It would have broken my heart if you'd said yes. All oh, right, well... Lucky you. This relationship, and it's been ruined by parody and... Well, hang on, we're talking about the video thing first, well, the with video, placards the video, come later. The, yeah, 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 but like, it, it's kind of, again, it's been parodied. And, I mean, in itself, there is the, the kind of suggestion, and it, I mean, it's like, it might as well have a big arrow and a pointing at the fact that he owns Rear Window on video. Yeah. And, and we joked about earlier, I haven't seen Rear Window, I know enough about it to know what it's about. Yeah. And he essentially is really frosty and borderline unpleasant to this child <laughs> that is married to his best friend. Yeah. And it is just textbook, I fancy her so much. And he kind of labels it as a, as a defence mechanism kind of thing. But she this convoluted thing where her vid- wedding video was fucked up and he's recorded it on his camcorder, which yeah. has turned out to be the most perfect footage of her. <laughs> kind of in slow motion. In slow way. motion, yeah. edited with music and all this plinky-plonky stuff on the top. Yeah. And, I mean, it's Keira Knightley looking amazing Yeah. from a camcorder in 2003. Yeah. But, God, it's creepy. Well, that's the thing. I mean... It's a classic example of like how the how the um the storyline and him doing this is quite interesting and it does sort of draw you in. You kind of think, oh my god, this is really really weird. But the thing that's odd about the way the film deals with it is it doesn't show her looking in any way freaked out. She looks sort of flattered by it. She doesn't look scared, and I think you would be a bit uneasy. I think you'd think, oh, I'm alone with this person in this flat, and. I'm watching this and I think it the, the, there's a slight concern with this bit I think where you think are you are you telling are you telling guys that you know that this sort of pure objectification in a very strange way of someone is going to be something that they're going to take as a massive compliment you know I I mean I I'm sure you know it's one of these where it's nice to be told that someone fancies you it's also like you say she's in this guy's flat she should be at school. <laughs> She's trying to offer him munchies and a banoffee pie. Yeah, a bit weird. And, oh, God, it's... I don't know. I mean, even if they were the same age, I mean, I shouldn't focus on the age. That's not No, even no, no. Issue. Even if they were the same age, I think it would be just... Yeah, she could be older than him and this would be feeling slightly sinister, this scene, I think. Yeah, very much. And I just feel like, imagine seeing that and then... Him, him storming off. Yeah, and it's he your, has the tantrum, and it's your husband's best friend as well. It's not even uh. just yeah, a mate who's done that. Yeah, it's it's put in that context as well. I mean, it's very mm. voyeuristic. It's sort of, you know, there's something about it that feels very kind of intrusive to to be at someone's wedding and to think I'm going to take this opportunity to get lots of private footage of just them. <laughs> feels like a real sort of violation of of 
norm, a normal person's privacy, even though I know that it's, you know, that he was allowed to have his camcorder. It's like, if you're there with the camcorder, the understanding is that you're going to be doing this in a normal way, not in that kind of way. You know? I mean, I wonder when you have all these like reality TV, like Kardashians or the Osbournes or something, and you've got the cameraman and it turns out he was just focusing on one of them the whole time when he should have been filming the the family stuff. Yeah. And it turns out he's like a proper stalker and he keeps bits of their hair and like they used underwear and stuff. And so it's taken a turn, but it's same ballpark. Yeah. And I do wonder if they must've had a conversation and we haven't got to the Packards bit yet where they say, right, this never gets mentioned again. Yes. Un- until the divorce. And it's, um, yeah, ew, that's, that's a lot of pressure going forward if they're going to stay friends. Yeah, and it's um, it's also, it hangs so much on the casting list, doesn't it? Because Andrew Lincoln mm. is very handsome and a certain kind of presence. Whereas if they'd have swapped it, if, if Gregor Fisher, you know, Rabsi Nesbitt had played <laughs> this character... You know, and they had it played exactly so her kind of going, oh, they're all of me. I look quite pretty, don't I? You know, it would everyone would be going, why are you, why are you running away? You know, because because we project things onto people based entirely on how they look in this very strange way. So when it's Andrew Lincoln, mm. we're kind of like, that's romantic. Actually, this storyline I have had, this is a storyline where I feel as if men defend it, actually, quite a lot. I've had a few arguments with male friends about, about okay. this one it's it's an element of love actually where i feel it actually appeals more to guys than to i think that some women will find it very romantic but it seems I mean, what, to divide i'd people love to hear it. these arguments <laughs> oh it's it's courting <laughs> it's um although although i have to confess something which is that from a from a purely peak 2003 nostalgia fest perspective i have a little bit of a guilty pleasure which is that i do enjoy uh, that little bit of andrew lincoln um walking out <laughs> there's something about his zip up cardigan which is very 2003, 2003. the dido song which would oh, have been dido. playing all on the radio yeah. so much at that time and i was of the, mm. of the age myself where i would have been harboring crushes on people and stuff so it really is evocative i like the way you can tell that it's a really cold day because when he breathes out you know you have all the kind of mist and stuff and and i don't know there's something funny it always makes me laugh that bit of him storming but i do also kind of think ah my youth it's like (laughs) it's just like real i actually look forward to that little bit of him walking through the oxo tower whatever it is just because it's so yeah so 2003 yeah, he's probably had boot cut, boot cut jeans and brown shoes. On. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's weird. And again, like you know, she sat there. I mean, if they'd recast that and it had Chris Marshall in that role, yes, then she'd exactly. Have, yeah, oh, freak the fuck out. But, yes, um, yes. I, and again, like you say, you know, she takes all this so well because he's like, oh, fine, you know, I get this three times a week. So. <laughs> But I, I just find there's that. And oh, should we just talk about the placards now? Yeah, okay. Th- that's okay. what people are here yeah, for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I'm not going to defend Andrew Lincoln or what was his character's name in this? Mark. Yeah. I mean, imagine, again, we talked about this with Chris Marshall earlier. Imagine having the balls to go to your mate's house 
your best mate's house <laughs> with a tape recorder and some handwritten signs declaring that you love her, this child and that she's perfect and mm. and yeah, you know that's the thing. It's like you to is it you to me are perfect. Yeah, something gra- grammatically appalling, and it's and and what, what if he'd opened the door and he'd just go, oh shit. Um, did he have something on the other side of the cards or something to, you know? But it's um... <laughs> also the say it's Carol. Say I've always thought, you know, in two thousand and three, I don't think you could have just played a tape of some. Carol City and anyone would have bought, bought that I don't well, think well it might have been yet. a mini disc or something <laughs> yeah. but I, I mean again who who is Carol Singers I don't know but it's um, <laughs> I just I I don't want to praise him because it's, it's just he should be locked up but oh that is some confidence yeah that is some confidence yeah, yeah. I mean again you know transposing ourselves into these characters if you had just learned that your <laughs> husband's best friend lusted after you in in a way that, again, you know, creepy. And then you opened the door to him with all this. Mm. I mean, you'd call the police, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think husband. so. And and I think that you're, the fact that it's funny in this film because you have infidelity dealt with, but you don't have any... What you, it, we're meant to be completely fine with the fact that Kira Knightley's character doesn't tell her husband that any of this is going on. And you think, actually, that's quite, you know, if that were, if, if I were the husband and my best friend were pulling these moves on my new partner, I think I'd want to know that they were doing that, you know? <laughs> you don't want to be like planning their next surprise birthday party while, you know, your partner's going, yeah, they kept putting the moves on me. They turned up with placards last Christmas. Imagine if they go round to his for dinner and they go into his, and it turns out it's like that scene in Alan Partridge where he's got this mega fan and all the tattoos and the pictures on the wall and stuff. I mean, that's what it would be like, but just with pictures of Keira Knightley. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great, there's a really great episode of Seinfeld called uh, The Opera where this happens to Elaine's character where she she's dating this guy and then she walks, in, walks into his apartment and his apartment are covered in pictures of her that he took without her knowing while she was out on the street or through her window in the shower and stuff and you know Julia Louis-Dreyfus does it so well where you know she really conveys that thing of like okay I'm gonna try you know and show him that I'm not absolutely terrified while trying to get out of his apartment as quickly as I can. I always think that that was a really good example of someone sort of showing you what a woman's perspective would be of that, I think, or what most women's perspectives would be anyway. Um, To, yeah, to minimise any feelings that you'd have of of unease, I think is, well, it's just not very good for young, impressionable men watching the film. You think, oh, don't, you know, like women that would have a problem with this aren't uptight. They're just human, you know, it's... And how many times has this been replicated by guys thinking this'll do? This is like this will win me this woman's heart or whatever. I mean, whether their you know, situation's the same or not, you know, it's just a girl I fancy. I'll just stand up outside her door with some handwritten signs. But it's yeah. I, uh... I think I'd prefer uh, John Cusack holding up a boombox playing Peter Gabriel. <laughs> I think that's, that's preferable. 
<laughs> At least there was no husband in the house. I think there was a disgruntled Fraser's dad. Well, um, Fraser's dad's always disgruntled. Yeah, that's true. That's um, true. Um, I, I mean, yeah, and, and, then, and then again, you know, we, we we jested. You know, this was ripped off by prominent political party broadcast. Yes, you know, that's how far this has gone. Yes, I mean, it's also inspired originally by that um, subterranean homesick yeah, blues yeah, by yeah. Bob Dylan. But yeah, yeah, no, 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 you're right. They they use it all the time, don't they? Both parties have used it. I mean, um, both Labour and Conservative in recent times, I think. Yeah. But I mean, let's be honest as well. I mean, they're obviously living, I suppose, in some sort of muse in West London or something like that. She runs out and fucking kisses him. I mean, it's just going to lead him on. That's not going to make it go away. Yeah, it's not going to make it go. That's, you know, if I had one bit of advice to young women watching that film, because like, that will not make it go away. <laughs> if, if, you, if, you think, if you think you've seen the last of him doing that kind of thing, you have not. So, um, yeah. You've just encouraged him. I mean, it's like a dog wheeze on the floor and you give him a biscuit. It's like, come on. And another oh. line, a line that he holds up that, didn't go down well with the women in my family when we were watching it um, was the one that you've already touched on, which is, to me, you are perfect. Because that's mm. a, another thing is that that feels quite a lot of pressure, I think, that word. And it's, I think that people sometimes think that it's a romantic thing to say to someone that, you know, you're perfect, whereas actually it just sort of feels, it, particularly in that context of just kind of, you know, it's, it's so sort of childlike and based on nothing. It's not based on any kind of... Re- it's, it's the opposite to Harry's speech to Sally at the end of that film where he lists all the things that he actually knows about her that make her not perfect, but great anyway, you know. I mean, the thing is, like, he could write something on there. I mean, it, it wouldn't fit. The words would be smaller and it wouldn't be the same. But it'd be like, to me, you're very attractive and I, I find, you you know, you're funny, you know, and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. and like, to me, you're perfect. It's like, right, I have placed you on this pedestal. Yes, exactly. It is now up to you to remain there. No, that's so right. That's the thing. That's absolutely the thing, because no one can remain there. But, yeah. And as well, he's put to me. I mean, if you're going to tell someone they're perfect, yeah, tell them you are perfect. Don't say, oh, to me, I think you're perfect. No one else does. Yeah, the implication Gaslight. is your husband doesn't think you're perfect. Yeah. I do. He thinks you're trash. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're perfect. Come with me now. Get it go. I mean, this is just... It is like a teenage boy. I mean, it's, again, you know, making that joke. That's probably what she's used to. But it's um, <laughs> it's just appalling. And, and I know, like, he, Andrew Lincoln, Curtis, has subsequently looked at it in hindsight and gone yes it's a bit much yeah you know and that's fine because it is but my god i mean that's probably worked for some people though i mean you know people get a lot of inspiration for how to woo someone (laughs) with bits from films you know and they've probably done this albeit not with the kind of cards and pen that they have in a an expensive film production but probably like an a4 pad and a biro yeah why do you think it's the most famous scene, though? I mean, this is there must be something about this. It can't just be that it's objectionable. There must be... I think, though, there is that... Because there's a, an element, you know, with the visual where it, it works as a meme, almost. Yes. Um, and I think you can look at this as a still 
and it works and it portrays what he's doing because I mean obviously then you lose the context it just looks like a hugely romantic gesture and not one of I'm gonna kill you yeah um but I I think it's maybe it is one of those that people have kind of thought it's a bit weird I wonder whether whether uh, people there are a lot of people that relate to it because it's one of the storylines that that's about this idea of someone really loving someone that they can't have and that there's something about that that chimes with a lot of people's experiences so they that's why that storyline is the most famous one enough enough now i mean they have that it's interesting who gets resolution and who doesn't because one thing that i find really hard about the film is how they leave laura linney's storyline where it is made to feel as if you know if a character like hers or emma thompson's has responsibilities in their life whether it be making a papier-mâché lobster or having you know a brother that you're taking the calls of you're kind of, you know, left thinking, well, then your life is going to end in tragedy unless you dedicate, you know, yourself wholly to to your love life, then, you know, you can't juggle different things. I mean, I think it would have been so great if they had had Carl come up to her, just, you know, it could have been a really brief scene and just be like, hey, should we go for a coffee? And you can, you know, yeah, like maybe we can sort something out, you know, like maybe there's a way around this or just something and you might not even have known that they'd end up together or anything but just that, like a little glimmer of hope that Laura Linney's character is going to get someone that's going to give her a bit of you know it's just going to help her help her kind of yeah just but like have different elements in her life or something I think like that's the thing is that you know he's portrayed as this perfectly nice was it, graphic design or something like that and yeah, I mean, he's obviously just thinking about her as a, an object. Yeah. I mean, I, it's difficult, I guess, like, because again, like you've said, Laura Linney and Emma Thompson have to kind of almost make a choice. Yeah. And it's like, do you stick with your family or do you chase tail, whatever? <laughs> yeah. um, and, it, and And that's where it goes because, you know, if Carl was this emotionally well-rounded person who liked her yeah he might he might well have done and kind of gone you know what you know how can i put this in a in a not awful way we'll have baggage yeah we'll have commitments we'll have yeah. family or we'll have work or whatever that you know yeah are always going to be in the way yeah and we can what either live with it or we can you know maybe they could just be friends i don't know yes but yeah. at least he can accept that that's part of her yeah and it's a fucking pain in the arse yeah uh, and everything but he can still like you say go for a coffee they can date they can be good friends yeah you know whatever but the fact that he kind of leaves her alone in the dark office on christmas is it christmas eve yeah um when she's about to get beaten up by her brother yeah that, that that's kind of where that is left yeah and she's just like well you chose to uh, be a point of contact for your brother so um you are now sentenced to this. <laughs> yeah exactly and emma, and emma thompson like on the other hand you know she's like your husband is 
and and that's that's kind of that the way the way that's left is weird because it's kind of them reuniting at the airport and has he gone away to clear his head or whatever and you know and he comes back and she's gives that kind of stilted welcome home yeah well we haven't actually talked about her big scene haven't we well no no but like yeah 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 that's that's kind of where that is so like so laura linney yeah she's in bed with oily carl yeah and her brother calls her and she jumps because that's what she does Mm. and it costs her a night of probably completely inadequate sex (laughs) um because it would be with him and (laughs) that that's kind of where that ends that spark never ignites and he goes off and finds someone else to oil him up and and she has her brother and the nokia tune when you're when you're watching it a little bit older you do those things are so striking because you think everyone you know once they've well obviously younger people too but after the age of 30 everyone has elements of their life where they have responsibilities that cut across um, you know your pleasures and that's just part of life and you find a way to figure it out hopefully and so there's something about the fact that Laura Linney's character she's quite isolated in the way you know because Emma Thompson's um, character even though she's got this husband who might be straying she's got the best friend in Liam Neeson you know she looks like she's quite networked up and she's got her mm. brother who's prime minister whereas L- Laura Linney's character is much more isolated she says that their parents have died and it's her and her brother come over from America and they're there and there's something about the fact that she you know she she takes those calls in that one scene she 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 does that and she's not sort of given she's not kind of given a second chance to go okay maybe you're kind of in that pattern but maybe that can be maybe you know you could look at changing the pattern a bit so that you're able to fit something else you know it's just it's just the the, the way it's so kind of bleak isn't it for her at the end in, in, in yeah. and i don't understand why they why they leave it like that so much because it if it was a man it would be uh he'd get his cake and eat it Maybe I think so. I mean, Alan Rickman has got, you know, as as his, he, I'm sure he's got quite a stressful job, you know, because he seems to be the boss and he's got kids and he's managing to find time to do robotic flirting. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> he's he's managing to fit it all in. <laughs> Alan Rickman, though, isn't it? It's a CD. Joni Mitchell. Wow. To continue your emotional education. Yes. <laughs> Goodness. That's great. My brilliant wife. Ah, yes. Actually, um, do you mind if I just absent myself for a second? All that ice cream. Uh, darling, could you make, just make sure the kids are ready to go? All right, no, I'll be back in a minute. To that scene in 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 Selfridges, with the necklace and and how it's presented, and I mean we get Rowan Atkinson, Rowan Atkinsing. Yes. <laughs> Did you hear that his character originally was meant to be an angel? Uh, of course it was. And that's why he takes so long to wrap the gift is to try and stop Alan Rickman's character from getting the necklace. Right. Uh, for Mia. Okay. And then at the airport, when he holds up security, it's to allow the little boy to go and chase after the love of his life. So that's why. But they cut those bit out, bits out, so it makes sort of less sense when you're watching the, this right, bit. Okay. But I do, I, I enjoy 
um, Rowan Atkinson, Rowan Atkinsoning. Oh, yeah. So yes, <laughs> um, and and to be fair, Emma Thompson shouldn't have been looking for his pockets for presents. Yeah, when she found no, yeah, neck. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not putting the blame on her. No, no, no. <laughs> the way that it's handled, and I guess you need in a film like this some emotional heft. Otherwise, it is pure fluff. Mm. Um, and at least you've got probably the best two actors in the film yeah. doing it. Albeit, it's mostly her. Well, it's 99% of it's her. It, it does give you that that big punch. And I do, I, I'm sure I remember there being more tears or something. I, I don't know. Yes, it's very, it's very understated, isn't it? It's, it's I think it's just because it's such a famous scene. You expect it to be to be played bigger, but she's very she's very good at doing that thing of looking like she's trying not to fully lose it, which is what makes it so moving. Yeah, because um, you know she's only excused herself for a minute. Um, yeah, there is that, and it's all about kind of keeping up appearances. Yes, element to it. Yeah, a, f- um, a film that I think. Um, probably inspired this film uh, a bit is Hannah and her sisters and it's a it's a better film than Love actually in lots of ways in my opinion but w- one thing that it doesn't do um, which is uh, it's got um, Michael Caine and he's cheating on his wife played by Mia Farrow and all of that is very. It's quite. I think it's. Uh, you know. It's it's quite. It's quite similar to this in in some in certain ways, not in others, but. Uh, one thing that films like that don't do often is show you a moment of the wives' perspective in a way that isn't, you know, it's not self-pitying. It's just a moment of proper empathy. And, and it's very weird because in Love, actually, you know, most of my complaints, I think, have been, oh, they don't treat the women well enough or they're not given enough lines or they're not fully fleshed out. But then this little moment, you kind of think, this is fantastic. This is like a just a non-verbal moment of proper empathy with someone that's like, oh, fucking hell, I can't believe I've discovered this and what am I going to do? And there's no easy answers. It's just, yeah, it's very pure moving moment isn't it yeah and again it's probably the next most remembered bit of the film yeah after the stalker which just goes to show how completely batshit the plot of this film is <laughs> yeah <laughs> because when at the school concert when emma thompson says to him about would you wait around to find out if it's just a necklace or if it's sex and a necklace or if it's necklace and love. Yeah. He says, I'm so in the wrong, the classic fool, mm. you know, kind of almost trying to fall on his sword a little bit. Yeah. Is he sorry for being caught or is he sorry for doing it? But he doesn't it? say I'm sorry. That's what's well, no, really weird. But, but that's the thing, yeah. Like, he's sorry he's been caught, yeah. essentially. That, and that's the thing, you know. He, oh, I'm such a fool. Um, and then, you know, at that point she says, you've also made a fool of me. Which is a great line. Yeah, and yeah. the life I lead, which also then implies what you said about the, the kind of networking thing. Yeah. Um, and wherever he's off been when they have their reunion at the airport, and um, there is that kind of stilted welcome home thing. And it's like, well, what's he been doing? Has he been off in Germany, again, having his cake and eating it, you know, whatever with, with his secretary, or has he just gone away for work and... It's just awkward because yeah. 
they'll never get divorced because of keeping up appearances and what will the neighbours think yeah but um I don't know I, I think because of that element of it and they'll stay together probably no matter what I think he probably did do something yeah I I think so she has that she has that haunted look about her I think when she meets him at the airport later on I mean that all feels very bleak as well you don't you sort of she just looks like someone who's resigned to not being happy yeah if, if you want the life this is kind of the penalty and he's gonna spend the rest of his days both trying to make up for it and probably now never being trusted again and it probably happening again at some point yeah it's it's odd it's odd that it doesn't get resolved in a like a, you know i think maybe when i when i sort of i was expecting there to be a scene where you know i don't know he might take her out for dinner or something and, and tell her you know why why he loves her her or you know they'll there'd be some scene of whether it be an apology or him you know t- telling her as his wife how much he appreciates her or something but it doesn't happen mm. does it he kind of looks sort of resigned to being caught and then at the airport later on she says it's good to have you back and it's all a bit ambivalent isn't it i think if it was a film about them yeah then we would and yeah. this is again the issue of having a dozen such pairings yes yeah yeah but again it just goes to show this it's another avenue that relationships can take and and of course you know we're on the flip side Kira Knightley could have a one night stand with um Egg and this will be her having a conversation with her husband well they have them um at the airport the three of them, mm. don't they? And yeah. sometimes when I've seen that, I kind of think, that is that better be like a sort of null coward <laughs> arrangement? Where it's just like, you know what? I just decided to have two lovers and that's how I'm living my life now. Mm. It's fabulous. <laughs> and it, actually, if they had introduced that as an idea at the end, you kind of, you'd think, oh, that's inventive at least. <laughs> mm. Well, speaking of having multiple lovers, yeah. um, Colin. Yes, what yes. A, so Colin, yeah. Legend. <laughs> in his own eyes um I yeah mean, so it's it's not a well-rounded plot <laughs> i always expect it to have a twist that doesn't come like um like there's you know in peep show the way jazz is meant to be sort of so sort of um sex positive and kind of really free and easy but they've got sort of a couple of scenes in Peep Show that are really good where Jez is confronted by an orgy or something and they have his sort of in- internal monologue being kind of like oh god I'm just feeling really miserable and I can't face it or something and with this storyline I always expect something like that to happen like Colin can't quite handle the threesome or or, or yeah. just some funny <laughs> thing that's going to happen but then it doesn't happen it's just like oh so that's the resolution oh okay I, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because, you know, he goes to this bar and orders a Budweiser because, of course, that's what people do and drink that piss. <laughs> you know, as soon as he opens his mouth, Betty Draper takes a shine to him and then her friend and then her friend. And then yeah. <laughs> and she tells two friends and she tells two <laughs> friends and so on. And, you know, and all of a sudden, within you know, the space of a couple of drinks and it's the whole, oh, we're so poor, we've got no clothes, we've got no money, you know, we've got yeah. no bed. Well, we're not the richest of girls, you know, so we just have a little bed and no couch. So you would have to share it with all three of us. Yeah. And on this cold, cold night, it's 
gonna be crowded and sweaty and stuff. Yeah. And we can't even afford pajamas. What? Which means we would be naked. It's another one of these ones. It's like it's like Hugh Grant's prime minister speech. You kind of think, well, if it's if this whole bit is kind of just meant to be like a, like a dream or just sort of all out cartoonishness, then you know, fine, you know, perfectly funny. I mean, the whole thing of them getting him to say words and then table being the same, minimum, you know, all of that. You kind of think that's perf- perfectly amusing. You know, it's not. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's foreplay essentially. Isn't it? <laughs> table um i suppose again it's richard curtis just being like what's every boy's dream it's this let's just you know i mean he's playing very much to the balcony for guys i think in this film he's thinking i'm gonna give them a lot of tips yeah i'm gonna show them their dreams getting realized there's a lot of yeah i suppose if if we're sitting in in the year of 2003 and you're kind of in that cliche of this film is going to be wanted to see by women and dragging reluctant men folk with them to see yes, it yes and it's going to be like oh well we you know they're going to hate this film let's give them something good yeah it's you know they're going to come away thinking if that fella can have a fivesome with them and, yeah and then whatever you know then at least they've come away happy <laughs> You know, it's just, yes, um, yeah. yeah, it's a weird one. I mean, I, ca- I can't, I don't know if I'm, I'm not absolutely sure if I'm right about this, but that scene sits very close in the film to Emma Thompson crying in the bedroom. And I've always kind of thought like, this film is mad the way it has that scene and that scene. So cl- like, there's not, I mean, you have to say, there's not a film like it in that respect in terms of swerving you from one just you know as you say very naughty you know it's like a sort of naughty's high school american movie and there's tons of them that were made that were a bit like that scene with colin and the girls you know it's just meant to be kind of all a bit bawdy a bit like porkies i guess but for for the naughties and then yeah but then also having that emma thompson one just around the corner you're like this is mad yeah it's like having por- yeah porkies and casablanca sort of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen When the, the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even Brightly shone the moon that night uh, So we need to talk about the school concert. I know yes. we've touched on it. Where it all, everything ties up yeah. wonderfully. As I said before, I like Hugh Grant. Uh, with the carols singing with the Welsh baritone security guard. I think that that, mm. that always gives me a big laugh. And I I used to work with someone who went to school with the boy in the octopus costume, which I think is a really good claim to fame. Sort of better claim to fame than being one of the stars of this film because you can kind of say, well, I didn't have any, you know, say. I, in I, didn't, I wasn't in any, any troubling scenes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like the bit where they're struggling to get him out of the car while they're yeah. declaring their love for each other. I, yeah, that <laughs> bit always makes me laugh. Um, what, what do you think about that whole bit? The, the octopus or the car? <laughs> just the, the way he managed, I suppose, um, him fetching Natalie from the house and getting her over to the school concert. It's all very Richard Curtis, isn't it? Yeah. The, the, yeah. The kind of not, that, I suppose that's a nod to Notting Hill driving around 
you know, instead of hotels, he's knocking on doors in, in Wandsworth. I, I think it's, again, suspending disbelief. I mean, he'd have had more joy if he was a TV licensing man or something. He'd know exactly where everyone was and be able to track them down. But um, I think it was a, a nice touch yeah. uh, you know as, a, as an ending i think you know the film is so haphazard yeah de- deliberately so to be fair but to ha- it had to have like a, a finale and yeah. i'm not going to count the airport but it had to have that kind of finale where we see hugh grant and emma thompson together we see these kind of threads i mean even the nude porno stand-ins are there yeah and alan rickman sitting there in the crowd and all this stuff going on yeah and it's kind of at least everything's starting to dovetail together a little bit you know we've had at the beginning the wedding and the funeral that appear to be on at the same time (laughs) yeah um and then we've kind of got the concert at the end so we've had the weddings the funerals but now we've got the school concert which is almost reminiscent of like the the ending of about a boy but it's um yes it is isn't it is this um, after about a boy i think it is this after yeah the year after yeah interesting um but yeah uh, Hugh Grant didn't sing in this one thankfully but it's um no. th- th- there is that kind of and the kind of the crashing oh look the reveal at the end where they're all kissing like yeah something out, something out of a Bond film <laughs> like a Roger Moore Bond film anyway. <laughs> right so not quite as secret as we'd hoped what do we do now smile little bow but I think that the bit behind the curtain when they're standing together and you're wondering whether they're going to kiss each other, I think that might be the only bit of good uh, sexual chemistry in the entire film. <laughs> Will they, won't they? Yeah, and you get the vibe between them. But it, but yeah. maybe I'm forgetting another moment that's quite convincing. I don't know. Maybe maybe Colin Firth and um, Aurelia have a, have a moment, maybe, but... But yeah, that, but for a film that's meant to be like quite a sprawling thing about people lusting after each other, I think it doesn't have very me- many moments where you think, oh, those two people really fancy each other. It is funny, though, because it does look like the little boy is watching that sort of hyper-sexualised video of the, the girls behind Billy and stuff, kind of, you know, and he's watching it. And you kind of think it's a bit like they're showing you what it's like when young boys are going to see this film. <laughs> be like this is how i will learn about the opposite sex is is this strange watching yes. an old man recreating robert palmer but with uh, some fake snow yes and kind of missing the point of ro- the robert pa- yeah the robert palmer one in comparison looks like it's sort of you know got its tongue in its cheek whereas <laughs> this one's like what are you doing it's crazy again le- a legs open thing being a being well, a christmas. theme yeah it's, it's christmas uh, so so yeah so we're coming I think we're sort of coming to the airport ending aren't we really yeah, yeah. I mean we'd have so we've got Rowan Atkinson the angel um, the kid being peppered with lead it's Claudia Schiffer Claudia I mean all Schiffer. of that really oh I mean what? but then she's not Claudia Schiffer though is she because you, we've already had Claudia Schiffer mentioned by name yeah, but the audience knows it's Claudia. So you think, oh, this poor grieving man is going to be okay because his ordinary non-model wife has died, fortunately, so that he's able to meet an actual supermodel. I mean, from the photos of her, we only know that she was very attractive, but she wasn't a supermodel. No, well, exactly. exactly. How dare she not be a supermodel? Yeah. Yes. But, um, yes. I mean, it's not like it's Kylie or anything, but it's... Um, <laughs> sorry. 
Obligatory reference. Actually, that's something that's sort of missing from this film. Kylie should be in this. I know that she, you know, she's not British, but she she's very though. much a British institution at this point in time, wasn't she? 2003, kind of peak Kylie. Would this be like spinning around just after? Yeah, a bit after. But I think that Richard Curtis is obsessed with models, though, because they also have That's Andrew true. Lincoln going. When I, I'll uh, next year, hopefully, I'll be with one of the, yes. these people, oh. and it's naked models. You know. And I've cut these pictures out of an FHM that I only read for the articles. Actually, we yeah. didn't touch on that, did we? That's another really creepy element of this placards thing. Like, why, why have you got them cut out on such large paper? I'm going to be spending Christmas alone with my magazine. <laughs> God. Anyway. I'm not, no, I meant uh, I was quoting him. Oh, yeah. oh, sorry, um, sorry, okay. sorry. Yeah. I was. It wasn't just yeah, a yeah. statement. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what she said. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, and again, he well, he's, he's in art, isn't he? He's, he's in the arts. So oh, yes, he is. Yes, of course. Yeah. <sighs> Large paper and scissors. Yes, but, he says, um, don't, don't laugh, they're art, because people are <laughs> laughing at the naked bodies. Well, as we declare war on America due to a fleeting moment of sexual jealousy, we leave you with the question, what is worse than the total agony of being in love? And if you're feeling generous in this festive season and you fancy leaving us a five-star review or uh, share the details of this podcast with your friends, we'll be all ears and we won't be standing outside your door with placards begging us to like and subscribe. Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. I've been Rich. I've been Kat. And this has been Don't You Want Me. Without you